The Bible is from the book of Luke, verses 67 to 79. And this is just after that John the Baptist has been born. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, I want to draw our attention back to the psalm that we started with this morning, Psalm 60. For those who might be unfamiliar, the psalms are or are or were the songbook of the Israelite people. Most of them written by their most famous king, David, who you perhaps know from fame of beating Goliath in the famous story. Around a thousand years before the first Christmas, David wrote this song, Psalm 60. It's a song of desperation, but desperation mixed with hope. In other words, it's the perfect Christmas song. This is how it goes. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. David's here describing three elements of the kind of life and times that he's living in. There's three elements. One, he's surrounded by enemies. Two, he's living in a fractured land. And three, he's experiencing desperate times. I wonder if there's any better description of our time, of our age. We too are surrounded by all sorts of enemies. Our globe is being hammered by climate change, threats of war, natural disasters, epidemics of illnesses, both physical and mental. Technology, internet has opened up all sorts of new possibility for attack, identity theft, invasion of privacy, cyberbullying. The list could go on. We're surrounded by enemies. But the enemies are not just out there. They're also in here. We all experience our own internal battles, don't we? we the foes of our own are the tendencies towards greed, unkindness, anger, and prideful self-interest. Our enemies are the disappointment of the best of life passing you by, the anguish of relationship breakdown, and the grief of tragedy and death. 
we're surrounded by enemies. Whether out there or in here, and it's the same, it's the same old enemies at work. The enemies of death, of evil, of darkness, of disease. The wicked powers that sabotage human flourishing, the things that lay waste to our planet, to our societies, and to our spirits. We're surrounded by enemies. And who are we to face them? David said, I'm living in a fractured land. But that, I don't think he meant literally the land opening up, but that he lived amongst a people who were divided. And we're today surely more divided than ever. Even in the age of tolerance, intolerance abounds. In the age of inclusivity, many feel excluded. In the age of politics, the two sides of the political spectrum are more polarised than ever. Some say it's the age of sustainability, but many are wondering how can we sustain this divided world? We're surrounded by enemies who are living in a fractured land. And we are experiencing desperate times. Of course, the old saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. So out of desperation, we latch on to anything that promises even a spattering of hope. To put it another way, we're looking for a saviour. And aren't there many available? All sorts of saviours available, off the shelf. Salvation by technology. Salvation by activism. Salvation by politics or a political leader. Salvation by therapy, salvation by consumerism, salvation by amassing pleasures and wealth, salvation by spirituality, salvation by success. There are all sorts of shiny new saviours around, but actually there are a whole bunch more second-hand saviours around, saviours that have been tried and discarded because even though they might have worked for a while, they pretty soon are defunct. There are all sorts of saviours that don't come through on their promises. But this is the problem, isn't it, with man-made saviours, saviours of our own devices. It's kind of like trying to fix a broken chair while using only the chair itself. Say there's a broken leg. Well, you might mend the leg, but only to break one of the backrests. Or maybe the seat is broken, and you might mend the seat, but using only the chair you have to destroy one of the legs. It's a futile effort. You can look to parts of this world to save you, and some of them seem to work for a while, but while one desire gets satisfied, it just means that another starves of hunger and thirst. And so desperate people remain desperate. Now, some people say to themselves, well, if I can't find a saviour that works, then the next best thing is to find someone to blame. So they take up arms. They go to fight against an enemy, but not the enemies of darkness and evil, wickedness, death. No, they take up arms against their human brothers and sisters. They look for someone to blame amongst those around them. And generally, it turns out to be those who vote differently, who think differently, who look different. Vilifying others for the problems of the world actually works for a bit because it kind of makes us feel good, makes us feel 
superior makes us feel important, like we're on the right track and all the problems that we experience are simply someone else's problem. But it doesn't take away our desperation. So we look for saviours or we look for someone to blame. Another option I think is probably the most popular and that's simply that ignorance is bliss. Why not just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to our problems and enemies? We don't need that kind of negativity in our lives anyway, right? Enjoy life, enjoy your family, enjoy your work, and tisk tisk at the news headlines. But otherwise, just try not to think about it too much. And if we don't think about it too much, maybe in the end, our enemies will go away. But they don't go away, and eventually they come knocking at your gate. They come trying to scale the defences of your castle. And the desperation that was really always there deep down rises to the surface again. So we're surrounded by enemies, living in a fractured land, experiencing desperate times. And yet deep down we know what we want, we know what we need. In fact, our whole Western society at least reminds each other of it each December. Just this last week, I walked into my favourite cafe, only to see plastered across the coffee machine a bunch of Christmas cards. One of them read, Joy to the World. And that statement, along with the many like it scattered around Melbourne, is a simple wish for what the world does not have, but for which we long. Joy, peace, kindness, goodness, compassion, mercy, true community, generosity of spirit. These are the virtues that the world wants and the world needs. And yet desiring these virtues in a world that's so attacked, so fractured and so desperate seems a bit like wishful thinking. Sure, we know there's good things here and there. This Christmas Day, we'll all experience, I think, at least most of us, good things, food, friends, and fun. But the idea of a whole world that is full to the brim of these virtues, that just seems unrealistic, doesn't it? A world full to the brim of joy, of peace, of kindness and mercy, a world where these things aren't just a bit rare or a bit hard to find, but everywhere, saturated, That just seems too much to hope for, seems too good to be true. And yet we still long for them. And every Christmas we still wish for them. We wish each other for them. The irony is that people haven't actually always longed for these things at all. Before the first Christmas, very few people did. But that first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, gave the world a great gift the gift of imagination, actually. The first Christmas gave us the ability to imagine a very different world. It gave and instilled in the human race a longing for something more than what we see. It gave us hope that perhaps things don't always have to be this way. And even our very secular culture that's largely turned its back on religion as a way forward has not yet given up on that hope. Our culture hasn't given up on that hope. 
But what it has given up on and what it has let go of is the source of that hope. It's given up on the person at the very centre of the first and every Christmas, the one who promised to bring joy and peace to the world. As um, Christian commentator Mark Sayers memorably put it, our culture wants the kingdom without the king. We want the good things of Christmas, joy and love and peace, but without the Christ. And we think that perhaps we can get them without going to the one who's in the manger. But there's no kingdom without the king, because when the king is absent, the enemies are too powerful and the people are too scattered to do anything about it. And so we come back to Psalm 60. Psalm 60 is a cry for the return of the king. David knows that if the nation rejects their true king, then that king will reject them and then they would have no hope. And so even he, David, one of the mightiest rulers of history, calls out to God and asks him to forgive them and to once again come and be their king of kings. So he prays, you have rejected us, now restore us to relationship. We are surrounded by enemies, come and protect us. We live in a fractured land. Now come and mend it. We are desperate. We are weak. Come and fight for us. Only one thing can lead to this kind of prayer. And it's possibly the most important realization that any single person could come to. And it's this. I can't win. I can't win the battle. I can't win this fight. I need help. And that help cannot come from within me or us or even this world. It has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from a saviour who is higher, who is greater, and who is stronger than anything that we can imagine or create. One who can truly restore, who can truly mend, who can truly heal protect and fight. And so David prays to God in verse 5, save us and help us with your mighty hand that those you love may be delivered. See, David's desperate plea is aimed in the right direction and with the right attitude. It's aimed not inward, but upward. And it's aimed not with, out of a sense of Uh, deserving, but out of deep humility. And it gets a response. We might say that the response to David's plea resounds from every page of the Bible. But we'll just take one. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. From the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah, uh, many years after David lived. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous saviour. To a people surrounded by enemies, living in a fractured land, 
in desperate times, the king is coming back to fight. And he arrives just in the nick of time, a thousand years after King David and 2,000 years before us. And these words preceded his coming. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, including Jeremiah. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant promise, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The coming king's name would mean salvation because he, was, because he would save us from our enemies. He would also be called Emmanuel because God has not rejected us but has come to live with us. And he would establish a foothold in enemy territory, though small to begin with, expanding, ever expanding to fill the whole world. And this king would come to fight. He would come to fight and defeat earth's enemies. He would come to bring healing to a fractured land and hope to desperate times. And yet, it would happen in a way that no one expected. Many babies have become kings, but never before has a king become a baby. See, God chose to enter our world by taking on our humanity. He was incarnated. You might have heard the word before. It literally means to take on flesh. He was born as a tiny, vulnerable baby to an unwed teen mother in a cattle trough in a backwater town in an unimportant corner of the Roman Empire. The prophet Isaiah captured it like this. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He came as the sort of saviour that no one wanted and no one was looking for. He grew up taking on his father's trade of carpentry and he would lead a life of stupendous kindness and humility but never aspiring to office or arms. Instead, he would die young at 33 in the most shameful manner imaginable, a death reserved only for the worst of enemies. Now, many of, this, uh, many, many of you are incredibly familiar with this story. You've heard it a million times. But for a moment, try and pretend that you haven't. Try and hear it for the first time. How would you respond? You might say... With me? Seriously? This is God's great plan? This is the answer to David's prayer? This is the great saviour? How ridiculous. There are a thousand saviours who are better 
shinier, more powerful, more charismatic, more desirable to follow. But I wonder if David himself would not have been so shocked by this. Probably because of his own story. Who could have imagined that a runty kid, the youngest of about a billion siblings, born in some backwater town called Bethlehem, would as a teenager defeat the mightiest soldier in the world with just a kid's toy and a few stones? Who would have imagined that this runty kid called David would become one of the greatest kings of all time? Though perhaps David himself could discern that God seems to follow a pattern. He seems to choose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the things that aren't to overturn the things that are. Maybe David's story is in fact just a foreshadowing of a much greater story. Because the king of kings came humbly to show that the greatest enemies cannot be defeated with human methods and human wisdom through power and politics and progress. No, he came to demonstrate that God's power is made perfect in weakness so that no human being can boast and say, I did it. I won. I prevailed. I made it. You see, the king didn't actually come for those who think they can win. He came for those who know that they can't. Those who realize that despite our own successes, our wealth, our abilities, despite all these things, before these enemies of darkness and disease and death and wickedness, we are no match. Before them, we are as helpless and defenseless as little babies. But those who realize this, who come to realize our own helplessness and deficiencies, those who cry out, save me and help me with your mighty hand, those cries have been answered. They've been answered in the birth of King Jesus, worshipped by shepherds and magi, both the highest and the lowest in the land, heralded by angels, the greatest enemies of humanity stormed down against him, like no human before him, but they could not prevail. Not even the power of death itself could defeat him. As John put it, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And yet when Jesus came, many couldn't believe that this was God's anointed king. And many still don't. Why? Because he's a king most of us do not want to follow. Partly because he arrives in a manner that goes against all we believe about power and strength and wisdom. But I think more than that, I think deep down, it's because we believe he asks too much of us. He asks us to do what David did, to stop desiring the kingdom without the king, to turn from the saviors that we have created and humbly ask Jesus to be our king again, 
to acknowledge him as God and give him our allegiance and trust that he alone can save us and fight for us and win for us. It seems that Christmas has become for many a a moment of respite from the fight. A season when things don't seem quite so fractured, quite so desperate. We'll sing some nice songs, we'll get around our family and friends and we'll be generous and we'll try and experience a bit of joy, a bit of peace, a bit of love. But we know that on Boxing Day, we have to wade back into the fray, once again taking up arms against those arrayed against us. But the good news of Christmas is that Christmas can and should be so much more than that. Not a respite from the fight, but a celebration that the battle has already been won. A season where we can know and remember and trust that the enemies of darkness and death and disease and evil and wickedness have been dealt a mortal blow. A season where Christian joy, hope and peace can swell to new heights. When the nativity scene can drive us again to our knees and to again allow the good news of Jesus' birth to give rise to this deep comfort. The comfort that though the enemies of darkness, disease and death may still rear their ugly heads, the king has promised to return again. And when he comes, the one who came once will come again. And when he comes, all of those enemies will be vanquished forever. Can you see what Christmas does? It gives us strength not to try and win the fight, but feel all those virtues that we long for, even despite the battle that still rages on. And to live out our lives as if the battle has already been won. Because in many ways, it has. Many of us here are Christians who trust in Jesus. And so for us, this season is our chance to once again come and humbly offer ourselves to King Jesus and give him our allegiance. We can acknowledge that we cannot hope to overcome without his powerful presence within us. And to sign up again to be part of God's saving mission to see his kingdom expanded and the virtues of of Christ that he offers us as gifts to be generously unleashed upon this world, to be examples of confident hope even when enemies surround, to be models of reconciliation in a fractured land and to be beacons of light to a desperate world. But I know that some here are still looking for a saviour, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. A part of you might still be looking for a saviour and you're still wondering if this Jesus could possibly be the answer to your deepest questions. It might still seem pretty far-fetched, even just plain wrong. And maybe you're possibly thinking it's just too good to be true. Well, maybe it's so good that it is true. This Christmas, test this saviour. See if he measures up. And if you do, I'm confident you'll find that this Christmas is a Christmas like no other that's come before. Amen.
Gerald's going to come and continue in prayer.